Thank you for the opportunity to speak before you. And today, we're going to talk about our enemy, the deceiver, Satan. Pastor Bruce has been teaching us about how Satan has an attack against the institution of marriage. Well, today we're going to talk about who Satan is. What is his nature? Who is this creature? We'll see today that Satan has a plan of attack against us. And if we don't defend ourselves with faith in God and faith in God's truth, then Satan will destroy our spiritual lives. But the purpose of today's message is not to make us paranoid about Satan, so that we see Satan everywhere under every rock. It's not to make us paranoid. It's to make us mindful of God's plan for our lives. God doesn't have a plan for us that is based on fear. God's plan is based on hope, confident expectation, truth, and love. And in the interest of truth, God reveals to us, He discloses to us, that there is an enemy out there, and we need to be wary of that enemy. That enemy seeks our harm, and we need to be mindful of it. But let me be crystal clear about something up front. The devil, although he seeks our destruction, he cannot destroy our salvation. Black, white, yellow, brown, rich, poor, tall, short, any human being who trusts Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins goes from condemnation to eternal life, from death to salvation. And there is nothing that Satan, that person, that person who believed, or any other person can do to undo that salvation. We are saved, and once saved, always saved. But the Bible tells us to be cautious about Satan because he is a real and powerful enemy. Does anybody remember that TV show named Lost in Space? It came out in the 1960s, and then there were reruns thereafter. And in, the, in that show, there's this family that gets marooned on this far-off planet. And there is this robot, which was state-of-the-art at the time, if we saw it today in a movie, we'd say, man, that's pretty sorry special effects. But at the time, it was state-of-the-art. It had this cool glass head that was kind of ridged, and then its middle torso was in this kind of flexible metal material, and that was ridged, and his arms were real robotic. And he, had, uh, he didn't have fingers. He had this kind of pincers for hands. And the robot's role was to look out for the boy, the boy named Will Robinson. So the robot would say, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger, Will Robinson. And the boy would, there'd be a boulder or something that, would fall, that was about to fall off of a cliff, and the boy would watch out, or there'd be a Martian around the corner, so the boy would be careful. Well, that's what the Bible does for us. It says, danger, danger, Christian. There is an enemy out there that seeks your harm. Let's talk about Satan's name. The name Satan means adversary or resistor. And it comes from the Hebrew word Satan. The Bible also calls him the devil. And the devil, the name devil, means accuser or slanderer. And that comes from the Greek word diabolos. Now, of course, Satan is not omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He is not the Almighty. There is only one being in the universe that is almighty, and that is the living God. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, and Satan is merely a creature. He was created by the Creator God. But among other creatures, if you compare Satan to other creatures, humans, angels, Satan's power is huge. Huge. Even Michael, the leader of God's angels, approaches Satan very cautiously. 
Michael's name is a question. Michael's name is, who is like God? That's what Michael means. The, 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 the name for Michael, the, uh, the Michael the archangel, it means, who is like God? And the answer to that question is, no one. No person, no object, no nothing is like God. Because God is completely other. Totally, totally other. And why is he other? Because his nature makes him the absolute king, the absolute boss. But God's not like a human boss that can be tricked or deceived or challenged or unfair. God has the absolute knowledge, the absolute certainty because he's omniscient. He knows all the knowable, everything that's happened in the past, everything that's happened in the future or that will happen in the future, and everything that could happen but didn't actually happen. So God, why is he the boss? Why is he the absolute king? Why is he totally other? Because he has the absolute certainty to know what is right, the unparalleled power to do what is right, and the holiness that compels him to act righteously. Michael is referred to in the Bible as the archangel. And archangel means the chief angel. Revelation 12 tells us that Michael leads the elect angels of God, God's angels into battle against Satan and the fallen angels. It's like this. God is the commander-in-chief of the angelic armies, and there are real armies. God's the commander-in-chief of the angelic armies. Michael is like the general of the armies. In this Revelation 12 battle, Michael kicks Satan out of heaven. Satan, who has had access to heaven for eons, for trillions of years, gets the boot by Michael. Michael's name reminds the whole angelic realm that God is in charge, that God is superior to and has authority over all of his creation. And every time Satan sees Michael, boom, he gets a punch in the gut just by the mere name because the name of Michael reminds Satan that he's going to lose and he's going to lose big. But here's the fascinating thing. Even though Michael is this way bad dude, even though Michael is this powerful angel that has the awesome privilege of taking Satan by the scruff of the neck and throwing him out of heaven, Michael's humble. Michael's humble. He didn't get the big head. He didn't think he's hot stuff. Michael relies on God's power, not his own power. And that's what really makes him so strong in the first place. He relies on God's power, not his own strength. There's a very interesting verse in the book of Jude that gives us some insight into this. In Jude 1.9, we're told, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The Bible doesn't tell us why Michael and Satan were arguing over the body of Moses, and so I'm not going to speculate about that this morning. What's important to see here is how Michael deals with Satan. Michael understands that Satan still has significant authority and power. And the only way he can win against Satan is through the boss's power, through God's power, not through his own. Likewise, in order for us to resist the devil in the devil's system that is in this world, we have to rely on God's truth, on God's power, on God's provision for our spiritual lives. Now, in order to understand who the devil is, we have to go back, back eons, back quadrillions of years into eternity past, back to a time of total worship of God, back to a time before sin entered the universe. 
to a time when there was no conflict between God and his creatures, no conflict among God's creatures. This was a time when the universe was a total peace. God doesn't tell us the, the details about Satan's rebellion. He doesn't tickle our ears with intrigue or battles that occurred in eternity past related to the fall of Satan. Did Satan walk into God's courtroom and plant his flag and say, this is mine? Did Satan issue some written document, some declaration of independence that say, I'm independent, me and these other fallen angels over here, we're independent, God. What political maneuvering did Satan do to entice a third of the angels to follow him? Who was the first angel that Satan approached? And did that angel say, you're an idiot. I'm not going to join you. I'm with God. I'm not with you. Or did that angel instead join Satan? How long did God allow the rebellion to occur before he squashed it with his thumb? Two days or 2,000 years? We don't know the answer to any of those questions. And there's probably another thousand questions that we don't know the answer to with respect to the fall of Satan, the rebellion of Satan. Instead, God in his sovereignty gives us a very general revelation, a very, very general revelation about the fall of Satan. We're going to see Satan's fall here in a moment in Ezekiel 28. But let me say up front, this is a difficult passage. And very, very good theologians disagree about this passage. They have different views on this passage. What makes it so difficult is that the passage in Ezekiel 28.12 is addressed to the king of Tyre, who was a rich and prideful king in the Middle East. And the name Satan, or devil, or accuser, doesn't appear anywhere in the passage. But the words of this passage don't seem to fit a human king. Some say the passage only applies to the king of Tyre. Others say the passage applies to the king of Tyre, but it also reveals something about the fall of Satan. I submit to you that the second approach, the second view is the better approach. And let me show you what I mean. In this passage, in Ezekiel 28:12, God says to the king of Tyre, You think you're hot stuff? You think you're hot stuff? You ain't nothing. I've seen your trajectory before. I've seen your pattern before. And it goes like this. Up, crash like a rock. I've seen it before. You know where I've seen that pattern before, God says? In the devil, in Satan. So God says, let me tell you a little bit about that pattern of the devil. Please turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 28.12 if you're not already there. The setting here is that the Lord is talking to the prophet Ezekiel. And the Lord frequently calls Ezekiel son of man. Now that's lower, <clears throat> excuse me, that's lowercase there. It's not capitalized and that's just a generic reference to a human being. We learned from Will Johnston, Professor Johnston, a few Sundays ago that son of man is a term that Jesus used to refer to himself, but that's capitalized. So when you see that in the New Testament capitalized, that comes from Daniel 7, and it refers to Jesus' unique role as the Messiah. So when it's capitalized, it's Jesus referring to himself as the, the, the Daniel 7 son of man, the unique role of Messiah. When it's not capitalized, it's just a general reference to a man, a human being. Let's look at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. This, the Hebrew word for lamentation is kinah, and it means a funeral song or poem. What the Lord is about to tell us is a very sad 
and mournful matter. This place called Tyre was a rich and powerful city-state on the coast near Israel. It was very well known for its success and prosperity. Verse 12 continues, and it says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is the first spot in these verses where we have to scratch our heads a little bit and say, Well, wait a second. This doesn't seem to fit a human king, a human being. What human was ever described as having the seal of perfection? This phrase, seal of perfection, appears nowhere else in the Bible. Let's keep going. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. This can either be the garden of Eden, described in Genesis, or it can be a metaphor for the beginning of the angelic realms when God created all the angels in eternity past. Satan was there in both events. He was there when all the other angels were created, and he was there with Adam and Eve in the garden in the form of a serpent. Verse 13, I submit, cannot be directed to, a, to the human king of Tyre, because as a mere man, he wasn't there when the angels were created, and he certainly wasn't there, wasn't alive, when Adam and Eve were there in the garden. Back to verse 13. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. We're starting to see here symbolic imagery. <clears throat> Anytime God reveals heavenly or angelic scenes for us, it's foreign to our earthly, finite minds. What's the point of verse 13? God is telling us that this angel, this creature, was created with amazing, incredible beauty. Verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. This word cherub is angel. It's not, it's not a human. Cherubs or cherubim are a class of angels. The Bible doesn't tell us definitively the ranking of the different angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, the other types of angels. <clears throat> but we can glean from God's instructions in Exodus 25 about the building of the Ark of the Covenant, this special rectangular box that, was, that represented the presence of God among the Israelites. We can glean from that something about the position of cherubs in heaven. In Exodus 25, God told the Israelites, build this rectangular box. And on the top of it, build the mercy seat. And the, the top will be built by, with all gold. And my presence, God's presence, will reside on the top of that. It's referred to as the mercy seat. Now, God is omnipresent. He's here, and he's in Australia with Azam. He's in the Milky Way. He's on Mars. He's in Europe. He's everywhere. He's not limited by time or space. But in addition to his omnipresence, he also had a special presence among the Israelites, and that presence was on the mercy seat. And so in the instructions... With respect to uh, Exodus, from Exodus 25, with respect to the Ark of the Covenant, God said, Above the mercy seat, build these two cherubs, these two angels, but build them as cherubs, with their wings outstretched, facing each other, right above my presence. What does this tell us about ch cherubs? God, it tells us that God used cherubs to symbolize guards for his presence, guards for his holiness. God doesn't need a guard. God doesn't need a guard. But, it was symbolic. It was symbolic for the Israelites. Back to our passage. Verse 14 says that this is not some ordinary cherub, not some run-of-the-mill cherub, 
No. The verse says, I, God, made you as the anointed cherub who covers. The NIV Bible translates it this way. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. So verse 14 reads, you were the anointed cherub who covers, or guardian cherub, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Lewis Berry Chafer explains that the term holy mountain of God was used in the Old Testament to mean God's seat of authority. And in this context, it means God's throne in heaven. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Let's stop here for a moment. What does all of this tell us? These verses tell us that God created an angel unparalleled among other angels. This angel was the best of the best. No other angel could even compare to him. No other angel was described as having the seal of perfection or described as being perfect in, in beauty. God created this angel with, the, with incredible beauty and power and then entrusted him with vast authority to guard God's holy throne. This unique angel was anointed by God for the special purpose of guarding God's holiness in heaven. And this angel did a very, very good job. He performed his job very nobly. God even describes him here as blameless. And that is quite a compliment when you consider who made the compliment. When you consider that God made that compliment and God is absolute holiness. So when God calls this angel blameless, you have to say, wow. But then something grotesque occurred. Something repugnant. Something disgusting. Verse 15 tells us that unrighteousness was found in this angel. The angel by his own choice sinned, which is to say he rebelled against God. He went from noble and blameless to enemy number one. That's why God described these events in verse 12 as a lamentation, a sad funeral song, because this is a dark and sad event in the history of the universe. When God created this special angel, he didn't create him as a mindless robot. No, God gave him free will. And the incredible thing is that even though God knew in his omniscience that this angel would betray him, would rebel against him, God created him anyway. Because God's plan goes beyond his rebellion, goes beyond his betrayal. As a side note, it's the same thing for us. God knows that we rebel against him from time to time. He creates us and created us anyway because his plan overcomes our rebellion. In the next few passages, we'll see the death of this angel. We'll see the fall of this angel. We'll see his death, spiritual death, that is. After he sinned, Satan, of course, continues to exist. But his prior, special, noble relationship with God was dead, non-existent. Verse 16. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. This ultimate destruction of Satan has not yet occurred, but God has issued the judgment that it will. God has issued the judgment that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity, for everlasting. And that's in Revelation 20.10. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. This drills deep into Satan's thoughts. What was the source of his sin? 
How did he become repugnant to God? Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Satan marveled at his incredible beauty. And instead of saying to God, wow, you are awesome. You made me with my beauty and my wisdom. You are incredible, God. Instead of saying that, he got the big head. He said, check me out. I am all that and a bag of chips, right? I mean, I am. I'm something else. So he started glorifying himself. Glorifying himself instead of glorifying his maker. When brilliant people become arrogant, their wisdom becomes a source of cursing. How could Satan, this brilliant creature, think that he could go toe-to-toe with God, his creator? Answer, because he became arrogant. It is absolute absurdity for a creature to think that he can topple his creator. But Satan did because arrogance corrupted his wisdom. Does this mean that Satan is dumb? Does this mean that Satan's an idiot? No. No, no, no. no. By no means. Satan remains a brilliant creature. But in his approach to God, he is irrational and absurd. I've got a good friend who's an atheist. And this guy is brilliant, successful, just really good guy. But his rejection of God makes him arrogant because he denies that he is subject to the Creator. So my brilliant friend becomes dumb in his approach to God. Or as King David put it in Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Is my friend still brilliant? Yes. But with respect to God, he's foolish. In verses 17 through 19 of Ezekiel 28, God wraps up his statement. And he says, I cast you to the ground, I put you before kings, that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you, it has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. This destruction of Satan will occur at the end of time. There are two things that I'd like you all to draw away from Ezekiel 28. First, although Satan is the epitome of evil, we must remember that he is a brilliant, beautiful, and powerful angel. He has these impressive characteristics not because he's so great, but because the Creator God who made him is so great. Satan is not that goofy-looking red guy with the horns and the pitchfork. Although he would love us to think that he is. He would love humanity to think that. And he likes humanity to think that because it trivializes the threat. It trivializes the threat that he poses to humanity. Satan's also happy for humanity to think that he doesn't even exist. Because what better element of attack than surprise? When humanity doesn't even know that the enemy's out there, it makes Satan's attack much easier. Think of the difference between God's reaction when people misperceive him and Satan's reaction when people misperceive him. God is deeply offended when someone makes an idol, someone makes something that they worship other than God. He says, that's not who I am. I am perfect holiness and truth and love, and you're missing out. Come to me and have a relationship with me, who I am on my terms. Come to me. That's God, deeply offended when people mischaracterize him. Satan, Satan digs it. He loves it. Uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, even tells us that Satan actively disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan loves it when people don't understand who he is. 
And that's because he doesn't want people to understand the, his evil intent to harm them. The difference between God and Satan is God is truth and Satan is lies. That's stark of a difference. The second thing I'd like you all to draw away from Ezekiel 28 is that Satan's epic rebellion against God came from his sin of arrogance. Pride was his downfall. Satan's rebellion came from a thought in his heart. This is where the ancient struggle between God and his fallen creatures began with a mere thought. But this wasn't a harmless, benign thought. This was an assault on God and on God's absolute authority. Why is this so important that God decided to reveal it to us? Because it tells us the pattern of sin. All sin is the result of God's creatures, human or angelic, becoming arrogant. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin says, God, I'm in charge, not you. In other words, for my life, for my thoughts, for my decisions, I am like God. When anyone sins, which we all do, here's the attitude of rebellion. We're the master of our own destiny. We do what feels good for us. We do what we think is right and what we feel is right. And if others are doing it, nice. Even better, because we get to prop each other up. I say you're legitimate, and you say I'm legitimate, and therefore we are legitimate. As a result, God's standard is either consciously or unconsciously violated and ignored. You see, Satan wants to deceive all of humanity, and he has a two-pronged attack. First, against the unbeliever. That attack is to deceive the unbeliever into thinking, I don't need a Savior. What do I need a Savior for? I'm, I'm good to go. What, why do I need a Savior? So the first attack is deceive the unbeliever so he never even accepts Jesus the Christ as the Savior. The second attack is against the Christian. The second attack is to deceive Christians so that their spiritual lives produce no value for themselves or for God. I'm going to spend the rest of our time together specifically addressing Satan's plan of attack against the Christian. We heard in the scripture reading from Mike this morning that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Why does he do that? Well, Satan is the enemy of God and Christians are aligned with God. So Christians are the enemies of Satan. It's like the old saying, the friends of my enemy are my enemies. Because we, as those who have trusted Christ, are children of God, Satan seeks our destruction. How does he try and destroy Christians? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Satan has three principal strategies against the Christian, and they're all based on tempting Christians to violate God's will. In other words, tempting us to sin. The first is that Satan uses the world system to tempt us. This is what Lewis Berry Chafer called the cosmos diabolicus, which are Greek words that have come to mean the devil's system in the world, in this world. We're talking about more than just the planet. It's a system or order in the world. And that's why the Apostle John said in, John, in 1 John 2.15-16, through 16, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Does this mean that it's wrong to enjoy the planet? Does this mean that it's wrong to enjoy a beautiful southeast Texas sunset because we're flat lands here and when the sun sets, it makes a beautiful sunset? Is it wrong to, to enjoy the beautiful Rocky Mountains of Colorado? 
No. This is not what the apostle is saying. What the apostle is saying is Satan's system is what's wrong. Satan's world system. And the system permeates everything in the world. It's a system of lusts and unholy appetites. And the system is fueled by arrogance and by humanity's favorite topic, self. Right? Selfishness. So the system is fueled by arrogance and selfishness. And the system expresses itself, the world system, the world order, Satan's system, expresses itself in things like power lust, sexual lust, money lust, attention lust, just to name a few. The second of Satan's strategies to tempt the Christian is through our own sinful nature. All humans, Christians or non-Christians, have a bent towards sin. We all do. It's an inclination towards sin. This is what the Bible calls the flesh. Adam's decision to eat the fruit in violation of God's command ushered in the sin nature for all of humanity. And you may be saying, well, wait a second, that was Adam who did that, not Satan. That's true, but Satan played a central role in that process. Satan correctly anticipated that by deceiving Eve, Adam would thereafter follow suit, and Adam, as the representative head of us all, when he fell, we all fell. Satan's third strategy to destroy Christians appears to be the least common. And it involves direct temptation from the devil and his fallen angels. Satan did this successfully with Eve in Genesis 3. He tempted Eve and she fell. She gave in to the temptation. Satan attempted this unsuccessfully with Jesus in Matthew 12 where he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And unlike Eve, Jesus relied on God's word. Jesus relied on scripture and rejected Satan's temptation. Every time Satan would tempt Jesus, he'd refer to scripture over and over and over. And finally, Satan just said, I'm out of here. This, this, isn't, this isn't productive. This isn't effective. I'm not getting anywhere with Jesus. Because Jesus is relying on scripture. Now, the reason I say that direct temptation from the devil and his fallen angels is the least common of these methods is because the, the, the Bible reveals that it occurred only with certain individuals. Eve, Jesus, Peter, Job, and the majority of the occasions where the people of God fell were from the first two methods, from the flesh and from Satan's world system. Now we have to remember, Satan can only tempt us. He can't make us sin. He can't force us to fall, to sin. The only way we can do that is through our own free will. Free will, our own choice. And some get duped into thinking, I'm not responsible for my sin. The devil is. The devil is. I did it, but I'm not responsible. He is. The devil's responsible for it. And that's how Eve tried to shirk responsibility, but God didn't buy it. He punished her just like he punished Adam, two different types of punishment, but she got punished for her sin, and she wasn't able to shirk responsibility by blaming someone else, nor was Adam. Adam tried to do it as well. When we sin, we always have the dangerous temptation of refusing to take responsibility for our own sin. And when we do that, we take the shovel out of the garage and we just start digging. We just start digging that hole deeper and deeper. And before we know it, the top of the hole is way up here. And what I mean by that is we just continue in our sin if we refuse to recognize when we've done wrong. That's why 1 John 1.9 is so critical to our relationship with God. And in that passage, we're told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reality is that Christians who blame the devil 
for their own failure. When a Christian, by his own or her own choice, sins and then says, the devil made me do it, the reality is that Christian turns off the unbeliever to Christianity because the unbeliever says, come on, man, really? No, you did that because you wanted to do that. And the unbeliever says, I don't want to be part of a belief system that's phony, that's not true, even though at times it's painful to recognize when we've done wrong. We must always be honest with ourselves and with God by taking responsibility when we sin. How do we protect ourselves from the deceiver? We trust God and we trust God's word fully, completely, and without reservation. In order to do this, we have to constantly fill our thoughts and actions with God's truth. Trusting God or, or faith in God is the shield against the devil. And the Apostle Paul explains this in Ephesians 6, 10 through 16. In closing today, let's look at that final passage. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, 10. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Paul says here, do like Michael the archangel. Rely on God's power, not your own. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see, Paul recognizes that the devil's strategies are real and dangerous. And he's, he's warning us. He's warning us here. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This phrase here, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, refers to Satan and the fallen angels. Paul is waving a big red flag in front of us, in, in our faces, saying, you're in the middle of a war. Whether you recognize it or not, you're getting shot at. So be prepared. Be prepared with God's truth. Be prepared to <laughs> defend yourself with faith, is what Paul's going to tell us here in a minute. Paul says we're engaged in spiritual combat whether we realize it or not. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And if we go unprepared to the battle, which is to say if we go without God to the battle, then we show up to Satan's gunfight with a butter knife and he shows up with his bazooka. Paul is telling us here not to underestimate Satan. Because if we do, then we'll incorrectly think, I don't, need, I don't really need God's provision. I've been a Christian a long time. I've learned God's Word for a long time. I mean, is God's provision really that important to really that critical to me? Paul says, no, don't underestimate Satan. In verses 13 and 14, we'll see how to defend ourselves. And the answer is it's by reliance, total reliance on God. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Notice, it's not our armor. It's God's armor so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded, girded your loins with truth. Truth, here's the word of God. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith is the shield that protects us. And how do we take up the shield of faith? We exercise faith in God, which is the same thing as saying we trust God. We trust Him by believing in His Word. We trust Him by applying His Word to our lives every day, every hour, all the time. 
The minute we rely on our own understanding and our own resources to the exclusion of God, we crack the door open just a little bit. We crack the door open just a little bit and we give the devil an opportunity to slide into our lives. In other words, we drop the shield. We put it down. It'd be like one of our soldiers in Afghanistan. He's in the middle of a firefight and he takes off his body armor and he just puts it down. You say, no, put that back on you. You need that for your protection. God tells us to trust him in all respects. First in salvation through his son Christ, Jesus the Christ. Then after salvation in all respects of our spiritual lives. In closing, actions follow thoughts. So whoever wins our thoughts, either God or Satan, wins our actions. In other words, if we consistently believe God and obey Him and love Him, then we walk with Him in His plan for our lives. If instead we consistently believe Satan's deception, then we submit to Satan's plan for our lives, which is rebellion against God. Satan raised his fist to God and rebelled, and he wants us to follow suit. He wants us to join his party. But as I said earlier, there's nothing that we can do or that Satan can do or anyone else can do to remove our salvation. Once saved, always saved. Whoever trusts Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, they are saved, and there's nothing that can happen to undo that salvation. But for those Christians who live their lives in Satan's realm of deception and sin, instead of God's realm of truth and love, those Christians just throw away that rich walk that God longs to have with them. We must fill our lives with faith in God and in His truth. If not, Satan is delighted to fill the gap with his deception and ultimately to destroy our spiritual lives.